Come on. Good morning. Good to see you all. If you've got a Bible, could you turn to the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. Chapter 26. We made it. <laughs> We've done, well, we will have done in the next half hour or so, the entire book of Leviticus as a church. It has been quite a journey. Hopefully, through the study of this uh, book, you will have learned a lot um, about our Lord and Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus, and about God's plan for His people. Uh, hopefully, it's been a productive time. If you've missed any of them, you can obviously catch up with stuff. We've got stuff online if you ever want to come back and refer to that. So, what's happened is we've gone through um, the book of uh, Leviticus and we've looked at some key problem, uh, key kind of questions, and we've gone through the structure as it's worked out here. We're right at the end, that last little bit, the last couple of chapters, and we've asked ourselves a few questions. The main question of the book of Leviticus is how do sinful men and women approach a holy God? God is described as holy in the Bible more than anything else. It means he is set apart, he is, he is other, he is morally pure in every way to the extreme. On contrast, that man, mankind, are sinful. We are polluted and corrupted by sin and live in rebellion with God. So how do the two come together? And we saw in the first half of the book with the sacrifices and the priests and the daily the living in purity, ritual purity, and then coming to the Day of Atonement was how man can come uh, before a holy God because sin has to be dealt with. And God laid out a very clear way of how that could happen. And it culminated in chapter 16, Day of Atonement, where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle there and come into the presence of God and bring blood um, for the atonement of the people to deal with their sin. And then out of the back of that, we looked at this follow-up question, within how does mankind, men and women, live in light of that? The fact that they have come into God's presence, they are God's people, they've been set apart, what do they do? And so we looked at that back half there of the book about living in daily holiness, which covered a whole bunch of areas of how uh, we should live our life in terms of social justice, sexual purity, business ethics, all those things. We looked then at the standard of God's spiritual leaders, which were the priests. They had been appointed, brilliant, but then they had to live in a way that kind of um, uh, lined up with their position as God's spiritual leaders. They were the ones to teach and train God's people. And then finally, we looked last time um, at the calendar that God set up where there would be regular points throughout the year to stop, to celebrate, and remember God's goodness. So God's people, how to live in line, they were to live in holiness, they would have high standards for their leadership, but they were also to regularly stop and remember God's goodness and grace towards them. Which comes to kind of the final question now, which these last two chapters of Leviticus cover, and that is how... Are Israel going to respond? How are Israel going to respond? Because if we get the overall context, we step back a bit from these couple of chapters. Israel as a nation have been in Egypt. Book of Genesis, we find um, Isaac and his sons have gone down to Egypt, Joseph being the famous one we know. They live in Egypt. Fast forward 400 years, they've grown into a, a nation numbering somewhere up to a million, but they're under Pharaoh, who's a tyrant, who is treating them as slaves and treating them cruelly. God raises up Moses, goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Book of Exodus, ten plagues, they come out um, through the Red Sea into the wilderness. They come to Mount Sinai, where the presence of God comes on the mountain. God gives them the law in the Ten Commandments and says, you're going to be my people. You're going to be set apart for me. You get the instructions of the tabernacle, that tent that we've looked at, where God's presence would dwell and the sacrifices. And then we come to the book of Leviticus, which is the laws that God um, has given his people on how to live. And then the question at the end of it, in light of all of that, Israel, what are you going to do? 
What are you going to do? And if you read chapters 26 and 27, if you've had an opportunity to look at it this week, listen to it. There's one very big word that comes up a lot in that, in that section. 32 times, I'm told. I didn't count, but I read that somewhere. 32 times. And that really big word is the word if. If. If is a conjunction, and it introduces conditional clauses. If you do something... This will happen. If you don't do something, this will happen. And this is a powerful, powerful word. One of my favorite uses of the word if comes from ancient history. I studied ancient history at A-level. I loved it. It was brilliant. All learning about Greece and Rome. And there's a classic story. Who knows the Spartans? They're like, they've recently, they've had a renaissance in the kind of modern psyche with films, and, and they're like the badass of the ancient world. They were warriors, they were rock hard, they had abs, they had everything. They were just like, they were men. But then King Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, he was going to invade Greece and the bit of Greece, uh, Laconia, where Sparta was. And he sent this message to the Spartans. He said, if I invade your territory, you will be destroyed never to rise again. That's fighting talk, isn't it? He says, if I invade your territory, you will be destroyed, never to rise again. To which the Spartans, who are just rock, replied with one word, if. Oh, just, it's so rock hard. He's just like, yeah, if. Guess what? He did invade. Because of the Spartans gave him a choice. Come on then. Or not, and history tells us he didn't actually invade. And so this word if is big, it is powerful, and it comes up again and again because it offers us a choice as God's people. And a choice was offered to Israel as well. So we're going to get into that. So, big idea of this morning God's gracious act of salvation requires a commitment, not just for now, but through life. And this choice has consequences. God's gracious acts of salvation requires a commitment, not just now, but throughout life. And this choice has consequences. We're going to look at here, we're going to look at the choices that God gave Israel. First one, the choice has consequences. And the second one, the choices require commitments. So first bit, choices require, uh, choices have consequences. So this is a key concept of parenting. If you've ever been parented, been a parent, been a grandparent, worked with children in any form, you will know this consequence, uh, this sort of concept, sorry, that choices have consequences. Choices have consequences. You say to your darling little one that you happen to be responsible for, if you do that, then this will happen. Anyone been there this morning? Yeah. <laughs> This is what it's about, and God is saying this to the people of Israel, like a loving father. And this is the only chapter in the book, this section, that is not legalistic or ritualistic in nature. So we've done all the rituals, we've done all the laws, and now God has come to the end. He's saying, right, I'm going to make a choice. And he uses, in this, this chapter is united by this phrase, I am the Lord. It comes up multiple times. And what it means is when God says, I am the Lord, he's talking about his character in every way saying this is who I am, I'm a loving, gracious, holy, kind um, God who has brought you out of slavery, redeemed you, you are my people, I've set you apart. And as a result of that, as a result of who I am, I'm going to lay some choices before you. And it deals, deals with two things, it deals with blessings and cursings. Now these are common in the ancient Near East when a covenant was made. A covenant was an agreement between two parties, and what they would do is they would come together, they'd make agreement, and they would pronounce blessings and cursings on each other. Blessings if they kept the covenant, and cursings if they broke the covenant. 
And that's, that was normal, that was common. And, and for the people of God, the covenant was between God and his people. And he's pronouncing blessings and cursings on them depending on whether they choose to obey or they choose to break the covenant. And these covered whole areas of life from the city uh, to the fertility of the people, to the fertility of the land, to their flocks and herds, and generally their safety um, as a people. And the chapter begins with worship, because it always starts with worship. It always starts with our relationship with God. So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 26 talk about um, that they are not to worship idols. It's just a reiteration of what we find in the Ten Commandments and what God has always said through Leviticus, and an encouragement to worship Him and to keep the Sabbath day holy. That holy day where you come together as God's people and remember him that happens every week that is what they are to do they are to keep that they are to forsake idols forsake worshipping false gods foreign gods but only come before him and as a result of that he said there will be blessings or there will be cursings depending on you do it on whether you do it if you look at verse 3 it begins in my translation at least with that really big word it says if if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. And then what happens there is a series of about 10 verses where God outlines the blessings that will come to his people if you keep the covenant. If you do this, they include agricultural prosperity. The land will give uh, the produce. There'll be victory in battle. There'll be against the enemies who come against you. There'll be population growth. It means people having children and they're growing up and they're having children. And God says, I will confirm my covenant with you. I'll confirm my agreement with you that actually if you follow me, if you come to me, there will be blessings on you. It will go well with you. My presence will be with you. I brought you out of slavery from Egypt. I brought you into this land that I'm going to give you. And I will be with you um, as your God and you will be my people. So they are the essence of the blessings. And then they're followed by the cursings for disobedience, which start in verse 14. And again, it begins with the word if. If you will not listen to me and do my commandments, etc., etc., and this um, this uh, section has in it the phrase four times, you will not listen to me. Anyone here involved with small children has found themselves saying that you're not listening to me, therefore this is going to happen. If you did listen, it will go well for you. In fact, you're not listening means it won't. And so we have these cursings that come upon people who break the covenant. Again, a common thing in the ancient Near East. And basically, Israel has said, if you choose to obey, or if you, sorry, if you choose to disobey me, this is what's going to happen to you. And it is quite a list. It begins with terror, disease, blindness, military defeat, and paranoia, which is like, that's what's going to happen if you break the covenant. And then what God says, if you refuse to repent, have you ever done this with a child? If you refuse to acknowledge that you're wrong or change your ways, there will be an increasing severity of punishment. I've obviously never done this with my children, but some of you may have done it with yours or children you have dealt with. If you fail to do this, then it basically it escalates. And God says, it says there will increase, the intensity will increase sevenfold. So he's saying to Israel, fine, this is going to happen to you. If you realize, oh, change your ways, that's fine. But if you don't, the second thing, it says they've, if they fail to respond, then the nation's agricultural output will be affected. It said the sky uh, will become like iron and the land like bronze, which is these imagery of it, they're really hard metals. And so basically, you're not going to get rains on your crops and your crops aren't going to grow out of the ground. And it said, but if you still fail, then there'll be another level. And it says actually there'll be judgments on the children and the livestock as wild animals 
run rampant among you. They'll kill your animals, they'll kill your children, they'll be in the land. So as a result, the population will decrease. As if they still fail to repent, there'll be famine in the land, adding consequences. There'll be enemies will come amongst you and fight you. Eventually, it says you will descend into cannibalism as you eat one another because you don't have food from the land because of um, the, the rain hasn't come, the crops haven't grown. And ultimately, the final one is that if you still fail to repent, there will re- re- result in exile. Because Israel is about to take the land that God has promised. You read through Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. We've looked at Joshua as a church. That's where they take the land. The land God promised Abraham. You're going to have it. I've given you all this stuff. He said, but if you fail, ultimately, you will be removed from the land. And the difference between the blessings and cursings is that they increase in scale. So the blessings increase in scale if you read them through, and so do the cursings. And they both end with the same thing but complete opposites. The ultimate blessing for God's people, if you read it, is the presence of God amongst them. I will be with you. I will be your God. I will be there. The ultimate cursing, the ultimate um, punishment for disobedience is God says, I will remove my presence from you and I'll remove you from the land that I've given you. And so actually the ultimate thing comes down to is where they stand before God. And God says, if you want ultimate blessings and obedience, then it comes from my presence. And the ultimate punishment for disobedience is actually removal from my presence and you get removal from my blessings. And so that's um, the blessings and the cursings that we find in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 26. But it ends with God's grace. Go to verse 40. There's another big word there, if. It's also got a big but, which always makes my boys giggle when we're reading the Bible. So, oh, there's a big but in the Bible. And they all think that's really funny. <laughs> but there's a big if. It says, but if they confess their sin. If they confess their sin. God's saying, actually, you can do wrong. You can make mistakes. You can go far from me. But there's always a way back. There's always a way of restoration. There's always a way to come back into my presence. And that's through confession of sin, acknowledging you're wrong. That will bring restoration. That will bring uh, restoring of relationship and restoring of obedience, restoring of a blessing and restoring of the covenant that God has made with him. Because the covenant God made with Abraham way back in Genesis is the underpinning of all of this. God said to Abraham, um, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Your descendants will be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore and I will give you a land for yourself. And God says even in the midst of these difficult things he's saying, actually there's going to be blessings, there's going to be cursings. You can always come back. There's always a way out of where you find yourself. So that was chapter 26, which was the choices um, have consequences, depending on which way you, you choose. And then we have the final chapter, and this is choices require commitments. And this chapter, a bit of a funny one, um, it's, it deals with vows and dedications made to the Lord. And these were above and beyond what you'd find in chapters 1 to 7 when we looked at all the sacrifices that required the people to bring, the guilt offering and the sin offering and the fellowship offerings. These were extra things. And these were acts of personal devotion from the people of God. And this is when people made a vow to God as an act of worship and they were going to set something apart for him. And these were common throughout Israel's history. If we read through our Bible, you find individuals making vows to God where they set apart people or animals or properties um, and they gave them over to the Lord. And the point of this section is that these could then be redeemed 
bought back and exchanged for money, and that money would then go to God in its place. And that's um, how it works. And there were two things. There were things that were redeemable, and there were things that were irredeemable, that couldn't be redeemed because they were already um, the Lord's. And the first section, section verses 1 to 25, de- deals with redeemable things, and it deals with people and animals and property. And the idea was that if someone made a vow where they dedicated something to the Lord, it could be brought back, and depending on what it was, depended on the price. And the first one was a person. Often a child could be dedicated to the Lord. The most obvious one we find in Scripture is Samuel. In the book of Samuel, his mother prayed to the Lord for a child because she was barren, couldn't have one, and she said, if I have a child, I will dedicate him to you. And the Lord blesses she has Samuel, who becomes a great leader, the final judge of Israel, and he is then dedicated to the Lord, and he lives, he spends his time, uh, he grows up at the tabernacle, and he hears the voice of God, um, and is used mightily by him. But that's just one example. But a child could be then redeemed with money um, as a response, and depending on uh, the person was depending on the amount um, that they were given, um, and so there was, there was laws around that. Another one is an animal could be set apart, and given to the Lord and dedicated to him, and this would be an offering, uh, an offering of worship over and above regular offerings that would have been given to the Lord, an expression of uh, worship uh, and love, and there were laws about that. And the final one, there were property, could also be dedicated to the house, um, fields um, and homes, um, and they could also be used for the glory of God and given over to him and his purposes, which then could also be redeemed as well, and depending on what it was and how big it was, depended on how much money the individual used to redeem it. So they were redeemable things, things that could be dedicated to the Lord and then bought back uh, with money. And the final part there, chapters, uh, sorry, verses 26 to 33, are the unredeemable things. And the reason they were unredeemable and could not be exchanged for money was they were gods anyway. They were gods anyway, and they include uh, the firstborn animal, anything that God puts under a ban, and the tithe. And so what that meant was every animal... Firstborn animal from any group was given over to God. It was his. And it was a response from um, the worshippers that actually recognizing that everything they had came from God. And that when God blessed them with multiplication and increase, they always gave of their first. They always gave of their best back to him, to the tabernacle, to his, um, uh, to his worship and everything that was going on there. There's also things that were put under a ban, which meant that God, things that were devoted to the Lord, things like uh, spoil from battle, which is when we, would, we did the book of Joshua and there was, they took Jericho, that first great battle, and the walls fell, very famous. God said, everything in the city is mine. It's the first battle, the first, I get it all. And then what happened? One character, Achan, stole, didn't he? He took something. And that's why his punishment was so great, was because he took something that was devoted to God. That was a problem. And when God says, that's mine, you don't get to take it. So they are irredeemable. They are all his. They all go to his purposes. They would all have been taken to tabernacle and used for worship for him, and they could not be taken. Um, And the last one is the tithe. The general tithe, meaning tenth, is that that all the produce from the people of God, whether it be uh, from the fields in, in terms of the grain or the harvest from the grapes or even the animals, there's a bit in there about uh, they had to count every tenth. The shepherd had to get his rod out and every tenth animal was then given to God as a tithe, recognizing that they were his. They were used to support the Levites in the tabernacle, later the temple, and they were all given over to him and they could not be redeemed with money. And so they were the commitments of God's people 
that actually when they chose to follow him and they chose to make a commitment to it, there were consequences for that. There, were, there was a choice of commitment and a result that came um, as, a, as, a sort of, uh, as a consequence of that. And then we come to the final verse in the book, verse 34, and it says this, These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And so it sums up everything that we've read over 27 chapters. Is actually These were God's commands for his people. These weren't suggestions. These were, this is the Lord saying, this is how you, as my people, are going to approach me and live with one another and express yourself as being a set-apart people to the nations around. And they were given through Moses, God's chosen leader at the time, to communicate to the people of God. And now we've reached sort of the end of the book of Leviticus. It's worth having a little peek into the future about what, what happened to Israel out of this. Because Israel's been very, given very clear instructions. This is how you're going to live. This is what you're going to do. It's been given very clear kind of um, consequences. If you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. So what happened to God's people? Because God says very clearly, if you live under my rule and you come and you worship me and you do these things, you're going to have blessing upon blessing that you will not contain it. But if you peek into the future of Israel, what happened? They took the promised land after wandering in the desert for 40 years because they had failed to follow God, they had failed to obey God. When they got into the promised land, we looked at that Joshua, they took it, they settled in it, everything was great, and God kept his word, kept his promise to them, but then what did they do? They continually failed God. They were continually disobedient. Again and again, he sent leaders to call them back to worship and say, no, come back, if you read the book of Judges, come back. He then raised up kings who said, no, come worship, and they were meant to represent God, and then they failed after king, after king, after king. The nation split. We look at that just for Christmas with Elijah. The nation had broken up because of their sin. Then eventually what happened to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? They eventually went into exile. And so we actually see what we read in Leviticus chapter 26 actually outworking amongst Israel. God was really clear and said, you've got choices You've got consequences, you've got commitments to me, but you have failed. And eventually they are exiled into foreign lands and they live under the rulership of foreign kings. But God's grace is still active. And eventually there are the remnant who come back to Jerusalem. We see in Nehemiah and Ezra and saying, actually, they try and rebuild Jerusalem because God's grace is always present for them. And this always brings us, points us forward to where we should always end when we study the Old Testament, where we're going to end when we study the book of Leviticus, and that is Jesus. It always comes back to Jesus because the people of God continually failed. They continually messed up. They continually disobeyed. Sin was an ever-present problem with them all the way through the whole structure of Israelite society from the lowest to the highest of those with responsibility. The spiritual leaders failed continually. The national leaders failed continually despite the voice of God coming in, despite the law, despite the prophets. They continued to fail. But then we come to Jesus and he comes and he comes and lives out what it means to make choices that have consequences and to make choices and follow through with commitment. Because God the Son, Jesus, made a choice to come to earth to save mankind. He made a choice to do that. He came to save men and women in their rebellion and their sin against God. He died in their place and suffered 
the consequences of sin on him, even though he was perfectly innocent and not guilty in any way. He suffered under the righteous wrath of God that everyone else so royally deserved. He followed through with his commitments in that when he walked the earth, he faithfully taught and preached the word of God in the face of suffering and opposition, in the face of disciples who were dull and stupid and just couldn't get it. And he kept going with good. And he faced consequences um, uh, through his commitment when he was arrested and tried and beaten and scourged and then put on a cross and left to die. We've been reading through Christmas to the Cross um, as a family. We've been doing it in our life groups. And we kind of got to the end of Mark and we were reading it the other night with the boys and just read the next section. And we got to the bit where Peter denies Jesus. Peter, the great leader of the disciples, the kind of the one who's always got an opinion on everything. And Jesus, even Jesus said, you're going to do this. And he's like, no, I'm not. And then we read the bit where he got accused by the young girl and then he denied Jesus and then someone else and he denied it again and the crop crowed twice and he denied it three times. And one of my boys just said, oh my goodness, he failed so spectacularly. And I was like, yes, he did. And so do we, so often, don't we? But what does God do? God restores him. Because when we got to the end of Mark, it says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Tell him he's going to be okay. Tell him I love him. So Jesus endured all that. He endured all that opposition. He endured betrayal. His friends leaving him. He followed through on his commitment to the end. And as a result of that, as a result of what Jesus did, suffering the consequences of our sin, following through on his commitments, we too can come and know him. We too can come and experience the blessings of God because all the cursings have been dumped on him and all that's left for us is blessings and goodness in him. So this comes to the end of the book of Leviticus. It comes to the end of our time together and I kind of have to leave you with how the book of Leviticus leaves us. What choice are you going to make? What choice are you going to make? Because that's where it kind of is left hanging at the end of the book. And we know that Israel failed, but we also know Jesus came and so that we might have life and we might have redemption in him. But that still means we need to make a choice and not just a one-off choice years months, days ago, but one daily, every day. So if you're not a believer here, if you don't know Jesus for yourself, I want to offer you the opportunity to make a choice that will shape the rest of your life and your eternity. Come and make a choice to follow Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him. Because if you do that, you will know forgiveness. You will know redemption. You will know what it means to have the presence of God with you, the peace of God upon you. You'll be free from the power and consequences of sin. You will have a purpose in this life and on into the next one. And I'm encouraging you to do that. Do not leave this place without making that decision to come and follow Jesus. If you are a believer here, number one, you've made the choice Hooray! That's good. It's amazing. You can reap the benefits of what it means to be a child of God, to be holy, accepted, forgiven, adopted, 
part of God's great family, the church, and all that that means. You have to get all the spiritual blessings. You are now yours in Jesus, it says in Ephesians. We can celebrate that sin and death and hell hold no fear for us because those powers have been broken and we are now free. But the question we've got to kind of ask ourselves following on from that is, are you staying committed to your choice? Are you staying committed to your choice? In the face of hardship, we live in a post-pandemic world where life has been tough for the last two years. We're weary of being down. I personally am experiencing what it means. My first bout of COVID has been rough. I made it right to the end. The day before, they lifted the restrictions saying, you don't have to test anymore. I got it and tested it. It's like, oh, come on. Talk about leave it to the last moment. And the line went red, like proper red. And I thought, oh, I almost did it. I almost got through this without having it. But I got it. It got me. And it just... It was just another kind of like, ugh, the last two years have just sucked, haven't they? They've just been hard, they've been weary, but I've got to make a choice. And am I going to keep going following Jesus? And am I going to keep going after him? And not only that, not only has it been tough the last two years, the next year doesn't look great, does it? We've got a war in Ukraine. We've got the cost of living crisis they're telling us about that just seems to just keep growing in front of us. And you're like, oh, cheers, thank you. But the question comes, am I going to stay committed? Am I going to keep going? Because here's the reality is God is interested primarily in your character. And God uses the circumstances of life to refine us and to grow us and to shape us and to make us more like Jesus. And so in the face of the hardships we face and the things that come in on us, we have to make a choice, church. Are we going to keep going and are we going to keep growing in him? Are we going to stay committed to him? Now, the fact that you're in the room now, yes, well done. You survived those two years. And some of you have done it kind of like going, yeah, some of you just crawled in here. I know what that's like. I felt there was a certain moments when I was crawling. I'm even having a bit of a counseling. I'm having some sessions with a professional just to try and process everything that's happened over the last two years, leading you lot. Um, I didn't mean it like that. That came out the wrong. That came out wrong. That came out wrong. But it's just, it's just somewhere to talk and process what it's been like and how hard it's been. And so I'm still processing everything that's going on. And we're all in the same boat. But the question comes, are we going to stay committed? Are we going to keep going? Are we going to keep following and pursuing after Jesus? Even in the face of life's tough situations, are we going to keep going? Are we going to keep our eyes on the end? Are we going to make those good choices? Because if you do, I can tell you that God will be with you. God will grow you. God will bless you. God will multiply you. I'm not going to tell you it's going to get easier because there's no way of knowing that. In fact, the Bible says it probably won't. But actually, we know the presence of God with us. And so are you going to keep staying holy? Are you going to keep following after him? Are you going to keep giving to him what he deserves in terms of his worship and honor? Are you going to keep giving financially? In the face of a difficult situations, are you going to keep reading your Bible and praying? Are you going to keep serving? Are you going to keep being part of the family? You're not going to drift off into nothingness and just think, actually, do you know, it's easier just to tune in online and watch something and not actually be involved in a family. It's easier to miss Sunday because, do you know what, I'd rather stay in bed or pursue my hobby. 
Are you going to keep committed? Are you going to keep going? Because that's the challenge the book of Leviticus leaves us with. It tells us how to come to God's presence. It tells us how to live. But then it leaves us with that open challenge. What are you going to do, church? And I want to make a suggestion that I think following after Jesus is the best thing. It is the best thing you could do. Following after him, keeping your eyes on him, keeping focus on him, lifting our eyes, as we've already seen this morning, above the difficulties of life and all that that means. And I know that can be difficult. I've been there. I'm still there in a lot of ways. But are we going to do it, church? So should we just pray to finish? Do you want to stand? Do the band want to come up? Let's, let's make some decisions. And you guys have got to make the decision for you. I can't make that for you. But I will want to thank you for being in the room because you've made a decision just by coming here. And I think that's amazing. I think that's, that's not to be sniffed at. That's a, a big deal. Getting up, bringing your family here, you getting here and saying, yeah, I'm going to worship God. And so I'm just going to pray for us now. So maybe you want to close your eyes, open your hands, and then we'll sing a little bit more and see if God wants to say anything else to us. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you first and foremost for what you did. Lord, I want to thank you for the choices you made with the sinful people in rebellion to you. Thank you, Lord, that you made the choice to come and save us when we didn't even want saving. Lord, you made that commitment to us as your people. So I love you, I'm for you. I will do what it takes for you to have a relationship with me, Lord. I want to thank you for that. And if you're a believer here, why don't you just thank God for that privilege of just knowing him, the fact that he saved you and he brought you here, Lord. God, I want to say today afresh that I want to choose to follow you. I have decided to follow Jesus, not just back then, but right now, today and tomorrow and the next day. And God, I ask for grace on us to keep going to keep just putting one foot in front of the other. We'll do today and then tomorrow we'll work out tomorrow. Lord, make us people of your word who keep reading it. Make us people of prayer who keep crying out to you. Make us people of commitment who just keep going, who keep worshiping, who keep following after you. Let us be men and women like Joshua who says, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that be our commitment, that be our cry that we look to you. Lord, I thank you that you've kept us through this time. I thank you that you've kept us through studying the book of Leviticus. I thank you that you will continue to keep us in you, Lord Jesus. We can trust you in that. And so maybe now just take a moment and do some business with the Lord. Just do some business with the Lord and then we'll sing.